Hi, my name is Mike Tholen. I'm on Musicians on the Record today. Hit it. Hi, welcome to Musicians on the Record. I'm David Ward. This is the show where we get the musician's story and we bring you stories from the world of music, artists from the world of music. And today I'm really excited. We're going to get into the meat and bones of engineering, producing, recording with engineer producer Mike Tholen. Welcome, Mike. Hey, how are you, David? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I mean, we had the pleasure of talking a little bit before with Donnie V. Uh, you know, you guys are working on the album. You've worked with some major folks, Buddy Guy, George Thorogood, Enough's Enough. You, you, you've done the sound for Sensate with the Wachowskis and movies, and I want to talk all about that. I'm curious, can you give us a, a glimpse, though, first, as far as what goes into the anatomy of making an album these days? A lot of times, more often than not, especially nowadays, the artists will have something to record their demos on. And they've, you know, software's gotten very cheap. It's gotten very easy to use. Um, most of it's even free. Uh, so consequently, artists come in with these fully produced demos, you know, that have a lot of great elements in them. And um, a lot of times I'll take those demos and I will import all of those audio files from the demos into a new, brand new Pro Tools session, my session. Um, and I'll start replacing things and start taking things away, you know, or maybe we'll, we'll, we'll re do some type of rearrangement of, of sections or whatever. Um, but I'll always have all those demo tracks hidden, right? And in the case of Donnie's record, the record I'm working on now, um, you know, I'm mixing and there's certain elements that were in the demo that we just, for whatever reason, didn't capture it again, right? Um, so consequently, I've got all of these old demo tracks hidden underneath all of these new tracks. So I can literally just like open up and just pull things out in little sections of, you know, from his demo tracks to get that, that back. Um, so, you know, as far as making Donnie's record and, you know, and a lot of records nowadays is we're taking these demos and we're just like stripping them away and replacing parts, making parts better, um, keeping parts and whatnot. So, you know, demos are really, um, that's the actual start of the record nowadays, you know? And um, unfortunately, not every musician has great gear at home, you know, to deal with, and nor do they even know how to use it, which is totally fine. They shouldn't know, have to know how to use it. Um, so consequently, sometimes these demo tracks that I get in, they're, they're, they're pretty noisy, there's little clicks and pops there. They might be harsh and thin sounding, you know, and when I put it into my session with all the new stuff that we've been doing, that's big sounding and thick and it's not harsh. Um, I have to do some shaping of these demo tracks, you know, and some of it's pretty drastic, mm -hmm. uh, but all of it, you know, ends up fitting in, in the mix and you can't tell that that yeah. was used from a demo, you right. know, right. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, it's all about the song anyway, right? Right. Yes. It's not about 
you know, uh, how big I made that guitar sound or how big the drums sound or any of that stuff. It's really, it doesn't have anything to do with that. It has to do with the song. So um, if it was good enough for the uh, um, demo, then it's damn well going to be good enough for the record as long as that same vibe, you know, and that whatever we're looking for. Sure. And then you add, obviously, different other music, other instruments, other musicians' performances to the song. Yeah, as as the tracking process is going, you know, new ideas pop into our head. Um, you know, maybe some new idea will spark another new idea that will that will negate the idea that we had two weeks ago about one particular part, mm-hmm. right? And you have to be humble enough, or not humble enough, but you have to be open minded enough, right? To be like, oh yeah, that part that we put in two weeks ago that we worked really hard on, ah, this is better. Let's ditch that so you know that's been a lot of the process on donnie's record too is we are we are mulling over things and we're we're redoing things that maybe we spent two or three days on or five days on you know i mean yeah but but stuff that's on the cutting room floor to say so to speak is probably still very cool as well right so fantastic yeah i mean it's really really great everything that everything that i've recorded on to the hard drive um, that we've walked away from, we've all, everything has been really, really great and up to our, our standards production wise and performance wise. Um, it's just that once we get some of these other ideas in there and some of these other instruments, um, now we might not need that anymore. You know, um, for instance, uh, with, um, uh, Roger Manning's tracks, when he sent some stuff over, there was one section of the song that he did some brilliant stuff in that we weren't necessarily expecting. Um, and we ended up muting some of the stuff that we had in there before we got Roger's tracks, because now, you know, that's stepping on Roger's tracks, right? Even though Roger was very, very, very uh, conscious not to step on anything, you know, heavy handed that, that we already had. It's just that Roger's stuff was a little bit better <laughs> in that particular section, right? Yeah, exactly. So, Things, things get, get reworked over and over and over and over. Um, and that's the way I like to make records. That's the way I was taught how to make a record. Okay. Um, I started off early on in my career at a studio called Chicago Tracks. And this is in the early 90s. And there was a band called Ministry that was, had been camped out there for years, right? Sure. Their own base. Um, and me being from San Diego, I didn't know who this band was. I had no idea who Ministry was. I didn't never heard industrial metal or any of that stuff. Um, that was a that was a, that was a Chicago thing. You know, that was not you know in my circles anyway was not anywhere near L.A. or San Diego. Um, and I started out with those guys as an intern, um, and then over the years ended up working with them as an engineer, moving down to Texas with them, and that's a there's a there's a giant story there. Um, <laughs> Um, but the way that, that they made records is they, they would labor over these parts and, and whatnot. And then unless it was dead nuts, perfect, mm. they wouldn't move on. Really? Wow. We would, you know, there were times where, you know, I think, um, you know, we spent maybe a couple of weeks on just guitars on one song, Wow. you know, wow. and, you know, maybe five, five days of, of those two weeks were just getting guitar sounds. Amazing. Right. 
Um, now this is back in the early nineties when we had, we had budget, right? right. Um, you know, uh, Warner brothers was, was really strong behind this band at the time. And, um, that record, um, took 18 months to make, if I recall correctly. Wow. And that's not usual, right? No, no. I mean, you know, unless you're Fleetwood Mac doing rumors or something like that, you know, um, that was a little bit out of the ordinary, but still, you know, it like back then it wasn't out of the ordinary to take six months to do a record. Okay. And to go into a studio that you were spending 1500 bucks a day on. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was a normal major label record budget. Right. Right. Yeah. That's not here anymore. Right. Right. <laughs> Which in those days still with the record companies in the music business that eventually did come out of the band's, pocket or, or money anyway, didn't it? I guess so. I don't know. I've never been a part of that section of the business. Yeah. Got it. Um, that's what I've heard. I don't know if that's right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I, I don't even know. Um, yeah, I yeah. do know that, you know, ministry was making enough money, um, to warrant that type of budget. Sure. At the time. Got it. Yeah. Warner's is, is not, you know, full of idiots over there. They're right. No, exactly. Exactly. They know what they're doing. Well, let's talk a little bit about your story and like, how did you even get here, Mike? When did music and the, the love of music start for you? And I know you play as well, but you know, you, you also went on a different road with engineering. Tell me about your story. Um, I guess I was about 15 um, and a friend of mine's dad played guitar and this friend of mine got a brand new Strat for Christmas one year and Brandon had already known how to, how to play. Brandon Kirkbride is his name. Hey, Brandon. <laughs> Brandon, Brandon had already known how to play a little bit and whatnot. And, you know, I would kind of go over there and, you know, after school and, you know, like, wow, this is awesome. And I was always into music anyway. I mean, prior to this, I was, um, I should probably back up. I used to study, um, <clears throat> records, um, as far as the, uh, um, the lyrics, okay. um, credits, I used to study credits like crazy. That's how I even knew that there was a job for me. Right. right. Like, oh, wow. There's all these people that are involved. This is amazing. You know, I'd see, some, you know, some of the same names, you know, as far as, you know, engineers and, you know, uh, producers over the, over the span of records that I was listening to. Um, and, you know, I was, I was also that, that kid that had those little, um, little like cassette recorder and it had a realistic microphone that was with it. And I'd turn on the radio and, you know, find a hit song or whatever that I was into and I'd record it, right? So I could have it over and over because I was, you know, 10, 10 or 11 years old. I didn't have any money. My mom wasn't, you know, going to take me out to the record store and buy me records. She was too busy working. Um, so I was that kid and I, I've always loved music. Um, my dad, you know, turned me on to the Rolling Stones, Bob Seger, when I was a kid. Um and Zeppelin, of course, with my brother and all my cousins and Hendrix and all, you know, all those normal ones, Black Sabbath. Um, and uh, I don't know, I guess um, after, after I became really good friends with, with Brandon, I just started playing guitar and he was teaching me things and teaching me things. And then finally my mom bought me one for Christmas 
Um, and I ended up joining, um, well, actually, I ended up graduating from high school and going to the local college over there for some, some music courses and um, like theory and whatnot. And um, I wasn't really digging it. It was, it was really all kind of boring to me. And, uh, you know, some of it I knew, some of it I didn't know. And I was confused already. And I was just like, ah, it was, it was a little frustrating, right? Sure. I don't think I was that good. Okay. Um, but there was a guy that I had met in class there that we got along great. And he was from Chicago. And he had a four-track, Fostex little cassette four-track, and he had a drum machine, and he had a, he had amps, he had guitars, and I was like, "Wow, I've never never messed with this stuff. What is this about?" You know? he had a whole studio. It sounds like it's amazing. And this was like 1989. Um, but he he had no idea really how to run it. You know, he he knew a couple things that he showed me. He's like, "I don't know how to do any of the rest, Mike." So I ended up being so enamored with this four track and this drum machine. And um, I really, really, really got into it. And I really became good, good friends with this guy. So um, mid semester, we were like, you know, this is lame. This is boring. Um, and it was his idea to come out to Chicago where he's from and go start a band. Okay. <laughs> All right, fine. You know, I was eight. You were eighteen. Okay. Yeah. Like, fine, dude. Let's go. You know, I I'd grown up in L.A. and San Diego, and I'd done the whole Hollywood thing throughout high school. I'd gotten into drugs. I had gotten into you know just bad. You know, I needed a change, right? Um, so I left. Um, and I think I had. 100 bucks or 200 bucks and mm. you know, his family was here and whatnot but um but we ended up finding uh uh this junkyard that had a had an office for rent mm. and it was in this really bad neighborhood um but it was cheap and we figured we could set up our little studio in there and set up our band you know spot there we could rehearse there and we could have parties and stuff so that's what we did in um, chicago it's on the south side. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It was yeah. really, you know, it actually turned out to be fantastic. We, I made some lifelong uh, local friends that down there that were, that are just great people. Yeah. Uh, but for a kid from San Diego coming into that was a little shocking. Sure. Sure. So you graduate from school and you go back to Chicago. What happens from there? Well, um, I think I, I left Southern California on a Thursday and I drove back to Chicago by myself and I got in on a Sunday and Monday I went out studio searching for an internship. Wow. Um, and I went to Chicago tracks first and met with them and, um, and he had told me, he's like, you know, Hey, if this is the first studio that you've gone to, do yourself a favor and go to a few more and just see if, if you really want to work here or not. Um, you know, and if you do want to work here, you can start tomorrow morning. Wow. Um, like, oh, that's cool. Wow. Okay. Um, 
I guess I'll go look at some other places. So I'd gone to, you know, a few, few of the other bigger studios in town and um, a couple I got a weird vibe from, like, you know, this wasn't as cozy as that first place I went to. Um, another place, uh, this is a funny story. This is a really famous studio. They, uh, it was called Paragon. Okay. And I think prior to, prior to, to me coming to town and, and during the seventies and eighties, they'd done all the sticks records. That was their, their yeah. big thing. Yeah. And they'd done a, a, just a bunch of stuff, uh, from that seventies, eighties era. And it was really, really well known. And I go in there and I ask, you know, if they're having any internships available and the woman at the desk, uh, hands me a clipboard with a pen and she says, here, fill this out or take this test or whatever. Okay. I'm like what the hell is that? <laughs> right. Like a medical appointment intake. Right. <laughs> I, I do. I sit down in, in their waiting room when they, and this waiting room is just covered with gold records. Right. And I'm like looking around like, Oh my God, I grew up with that record. I grew up with that record. I grew up with that record. Um, and I start taking this test and it's, it's all these audio questions and they're all very simple. Um, and, uh, toward the end, I get to this one question that was asking me something that made zero sense to me completely. It was this formula that, that, that had no rhyme or reason. And I remember looking at it, just being baffled being like, ah, Man, all right, this doesn't make sense to me. I swear, like, I, I, I literally wrote, I said, this makes no sense. Boom. And I go hand it to the lady, and like five minutes later, Marty, the uh, studio owner, comes out from some other door. He's like, are you Mike? Like, yeah. He's like, come here, I want to talk to you. <laughs> and, and he pulls me in his office, and he's like, you are the first person to get this answer right in like seven years. Wow. That's fantastic. <laughs> so it was a trick question they put in there. Yeah, of course it was, you know? Um, so I ended up talking with Marty for a while and I really got a great vibe from Marty, but for whatever reason, I don't know why I ended up calling tracks back when I got home that night and being like, Hey, can I start in the morning? So I did. I started the next morning. Um, and, uh, they threw me in <laughs> to go clean up Studio A, which had been a mess. And there's the, the uh, client is still in there and whatnot, but don't worry about it. Just go in there and clean up. Well, I go in there and there's this dude that looks like a pirate <laughs> on the back couch. And he's, I think he's shooting up dope. I'm not quite sure yet. I don't want to stare. Yeah. There's an engineer there that looks like he's been up for at least a week and he's sleeping at the studio. Wow. And I look at the uh, rack that I'm supposed to clean up, the uh, top of the, of the island, and it's just filled with just all kinds of garbage from everything from uh, dirty needles to, uh, to Slurpee cups to you know, overflowing ashtrays. Oh, there's a, there's a pile of heroin right there. Stay away from that. Um, oh, and don't touch that needle, dude. I'll take care of that. That's what the uh, pirate was saying to me. He's telling yeah. me, he'll clean that stuff up. Yeah. Mm. And, um, so whatever. I, you know, once again, I was really humble. And I just kind of went in there and just, like, did my thing, cleaned up. Um, 
and uh, went and started cleaning bathrooms. And then I think I got asked to go on a food run. And, and then, you know, so, you know, it was um, things like that um, that you'd, you'd kind of get tested at at these different studios. Right. Yeah. Right? How much can you handle? Are you going to be able to handle this? Because here's this client, this pirate. Who's got a bunch of money? He's got a huge record label behind him. He's really, really talented, and he's shacked up here. And yeah, he's doing a bunch of dope, and you know, and uh, that's just the way it is. If you can hang, great. If not, it's okay too. But you right. should know, and you'll figure that out on your own. Right. You know? And I saw a lot of kids come in and see what was going on, like, and you know, you wouldn't see him the next day, you know, mm-hmm. um, or you know, we would, you know. Um, our our client, Mr. Pirate, would let the owner know that, hey, I don't want so-and-so here because he's a little, you know, he's kind of sketching me out type of thing. I don't think he's, I think he's, you know. Yeah. A lot of drugs, a lot of paranoia going on. Um, but amongst all that dark stuff of drugs and everything, there was, um, there was a lot of really, really great records that were being made. Mm. And that was probably the stuff that helped you stay as well as having a kid needing to take care of your family, all of that, right? Yeah. Um, the uh, drugs didn't bother me so much, um, you know, um, because I'd kind of been through it early on in my, earlier on in, in life. And, um, and I just knew that that just wasn't an option for me. Um, right. uh, and I was there to work. I've got a baby. Right. Right. Um, and, you know, mind you, my first four months at the studio, we were unpaid. You know, I'm, right. You were interning. Right? Yeah, as an intern, right? For four months. Yeah. Four and a half months, I think. Wow. Um, you know, and it got to the point where, you know, I'm spending 12 hours a day plus at the studio seven days a week. I'm sleeping there. You know, I'm, you know, and but that's what you had to do. Right. You had to make yourself indispensable yeah. to where if you weren't there, the client was going to be like, hey where's Mike? I need this done. And they're going to go to the studio and they're like, dude, why, why is Mike not here? Like, Oh, well, Mike's an intern. He's not like, well, uh, okay. You better start paying Mike so they can get him on the schedule because I need him. Right. Client that's, that's paying a bunch of money to be in the studio for six months or a year. Right. Um, so that's what you had to do. And I think that's still what you have to do is you have to make yourself indispensable. And it's, I think it's even harder nowadays because bands and artists have equipment, they have a little bit of know-how how to do some of this stuff. And they don't need guys like us right from the get-go like they used to. You know, bands used to have to come into our place and do demos. Right. Yes. If they did have a four-track, they didn't, you know, it didn't, it wasn't that great. It was good for a sketch pad. Right. right? right. There's no plugins. There's no outboard gear. There's, all that stuff was unattainable back then. Um, so they would have to come to us and spend, you know, say 1200 bucks on a demo and they get two days in the studio and we knock out five songs, you know, there's your demo here, you know, go, go get some gigs with it, you know, and they go get their gigs and they'd save their money and make a record. Right. Um, yeah. And then I guess in, um, 2013, 2014, um, a really good friend of mine throughout the years, uh, called me up and said that some, friends of his are building a post-production studio here in Chicago and they're filmmakers and he grew up with them and he's going to be, or he 
he is their their chief technical officer. Okay. And um, his name is Paul Mano. He's a great guy. He's a wonderful friend. And um, I told Paul, I says, well, dude, when it comes time for any audio work to be done over there, they had been, been doing a lot of film editing and CGI and uh, uh, like some visual effects work there, and they weren't really doing any audio yet. Um, so maybe it was a year or two later, he calls me up. He's like, dude, we need you. We need you. I got a team from Warner Brothers here, um, but we need a little bit extra help. And I want, you know, why don't you come on down and meet everybody and see if, you know. So I went down there. I think it was like the next day. He called me on a Thursday. I went down there on Friday morning, um, met with everybody and got along great with everybody and, you know, kind of told everybody, I says, you know, I'm from the record business. I'm not from the movie business, but I know how to run all this gear that you're using. I may not know your workflow and some of your terminology, but, you know, if you're willing to take me on and teach me some of that stuff, I've got the other bases covered. Um, uh, and they ended up hiring me on. Um, and the, I, I ended up becoming, you know, um, a, a, a part of, of their studio, you know, as, you know, the, the, uh, the sound engineer for the Wachowskis place. Whenever we're doing post-production, we have a team from Warner Brothers that comes in, like seven people. And I work with them and I work with the studio and then I, I kind of like liaison between them and the studio and, and help them integrate and then pick up any slack that may need to be done, whether it's editing, you know, or like recording some, some location stuff outside that we need uh, for certain scenes or whatever, um, helping with uh, this ADR um, uh, dialogue stuff that, 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 that we do. Um, and for Sense8, that show is filmed um, literally around the planet. Right. And we have actors that are around the planet and yeah. the actors live in these places. So um, when we need to do dialogue replacement, you know, which we have to do sometimes because there's a noisy set, you know, or there's generators running or there's some a piece of dialogue that's not, not coming out right. And it's part of the story. Dialogue's number one when it comes to filmmaking, right? Um, we'll have to bring them in. We'll have to like, do some of these lines over again in a controlled environment. Well, usually we're doing that in London or LA, New York, you know, house proper ABR facilities. But um, we have, um, we have actors in, in Nairobi, right? right? Yeah. We have actors um, in, uh, there was a session we did in, in Colombia this past year, which actually went great. Um, uh, South Korea, we have an actor there, so there's a there's a language barrier and the whole time thing too, um, and we're also hooking up um, in real time my machine along with their machine, and we have we're, we're like able to work in real time with the actor and with the engineer on that side and on this side. I've got um, our directors and our dialogue supervisor with me. And I'm in charge of the technical aspects of doing this hookup. Incredible. So um, you're, you're still like in LA or somewhere and they're in Columbia or Nairobi yeah, and yeah. in the studio there. Wow. Yep. 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 Yeah. It's, uh, it was, it's been challenging, um, you know, but it's been challenging for everybody on that show that, that, that's not a normal show. You know, shows don't normally get filmed around the planet, right. you know, especially a, some like, a, like a Netflix series. Right. Right. Um, but that's the power of the Wachowskis, right? It really is. You know, they talk about them and they're, they're, um, 
their brains are 12 stories high. Uh, but it's so great because their egos are like two steps high. It's fantastic. They have no arrogance to them. Um, working with them is an absolute joy. Um, and there's just, they're just so smart and they're, they've got these ideas that are just so grandiose that, you know, that they're, and they're so challenging. They're almost so extremely challenging that you're like, yeah, 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 let's do it. You know, um, there was a situation, uh, in this last season where, um, the music department had been using a version of Leonard Cohn's Hallelujah um, for a specific scene. And um, when they went, and it was, it was this giant choir version, like a 200, 300 person choir doing Hallelujah. And um, when it came time to license it for the show, they refused to give up licensing. Really? Um, for whatever reason, you know, they just refused any amount of money and even a donation to a charity. They just didn't want it. So, um, the music department was faced with (laughs) how are we going to replace this? Because they've also been editing to this for the past three months or whatever too. So the film was all edited and timed out to this version. Yeah. Um, well, um, the music department along with, the sound department, um, we all put our heads together and figured out how to hire a giant choir, get them recorded. Uh, oh, and by the way, I think we had a deadline of like five days this had to be done because we had to ship it to Netflix for air, right? So there was this really short time period, and I'm probably um, mulling over a couple things that Ethan, our music department guy, will you know, probably want to correct me on, but I'm sorry, Ethan. Um, Long story short, though, um, we had to find a choir, find a studio, find a conductor um, that was used to working with this choir um, to get it done quickly. Um, And we ended up, I think that was toward the end of the week. And by, I think we had a session Monday, the next, that, that following week, we, we had a session at like nine o'clock at night. It was the only time we could do it. I and mean, we, we did it from like nine to like midnight or something. Wow. Um, and it came out fantastic. And we ended up, you know, it's obviously in the show. And um, as we were working on it and we would do screenings with Lana, um, you know, it was really, really great because there was one particular screen, probably the first one where Lana says, you know what? This is better than the version that we couldn't get. <laughs> Our version is better than what we, then this That's is amazing, guys. You guys are great. And it was so great to hear that from her. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, but that's, you know, that's just how she is. She's not, she's, she's not um, above it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great show. If people haven't seen it, go check it out on Netflix. I, I have heard that, well, you may know, you'll probably know better than me. Is the show still going or has that been officially canceled? Where, what's the status of Sensei? Well, they, they canceled us after season two. Um, and I can only imagine it was, just, it was because of money reasons. Um, at the end of the day, um, it's a very expensive show. Um, and I think they looked at their... The, the budget and the amount of viewers yep. and they looked at some of their other shows 
and looked how those ones ranked out and like, whoa, <laughs> this doesn't make sense. Right. Mm-hmm. No pun intended. Um, right. But uh, so they, they canceled us after season two. There was a huge fan out, outcry, you know, massive amounts of, you know, um, of petitions and whatnot um, and outcry from all these people to Netflix and people canceling their subscriptions and all this backlash um, that, um, and, you know, rightfully so, because, you know, none of us knew that we were going to be canceled and especially Lana who's writing it. And so there was no ending, right? You can't end it like that. I mean, it was such a cliffhanger. It was a cliffhanger on purpose, right? Um, So to end it like that would have been just, it was just way too drastic. It was just a dumb move. Um, so Netflix uh, and Lana came to an agreement to do a like a two-hour finale, um, and they did it uh, quite a bit cheaper. You know, instead of filming in you know twelve different countries, they filmed in you know two, two or three or four countries, but they're all in the t- same time zone. And that was a big thing too, while they were shooting those time zones, because they would go from, you know, say Mumbai over to Iceland, mm-hmm. right? So now you're all your actors and your crew and everybody, everybody needs a day to acclimate, you know, or sometimes they didn't get a day to acclimate and they got to go out and shoot and they got to go do their best. And, you know, I wasn't a part of that. I just heard stories. Um, and I can only imagine how grueling that that must've been. So they were able to to do this this two and a half hour show a lot cheaper um, and kind of wrap the story up. Yeah, and you know, as far as I know, um, it's it's done. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah. Have you seen it? Because it is out. Have I seen it? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah yeah. yeah. Five million times, David. <laughs> Can I put in a plug or a request for, I mean, whatever the Wachowskis are working on is usually genius to begin with, but since Sensate is done, is it possible? Could we get a Matrix series? (laughs) We've had the movies. How cool would that be to have, you know, this is a golden age of television with Game of Thrones and all the Netflix stuff. Yeah. How many stories could be told in a Netflix series? You know, I would love to see something like that happen. Um, uh, but I'll be honest with you from what I know about Lana, um, and everybody, you know, on, on the uh, team there is that time, time goes on there. There's, there's, there, there are seasons in life. Um, and you know, that was, that was a moment in time, Right. And it's it's best left remaining that moment in time rather than yeah. right. Sure, um, sure. And the other thing about that type of mindset is that it enables us to explore new things and take other chances. That's right. Right. That's right. Yeah. And so, yeah, I don't. Th- I don't think so. I, I no. Not going to happen. That story's been told. I yeah. think. I think it's. I think it's history. Um, you know, I could be proven wrong. You know, who knows? And, you know, for all I know, Warner Brothers owns owns the story now, and it's in their hands for all I know. You sure. know, like I was telling you before, I don't really know that that part of the business, right. you know, of that type of stuff. Um, but but that's, from what I can gather, being around and working with Lana and whatnot, you know, she's she's always looking ahead. 
and she's looking ahead like 50 steps further than we can imagine ourselves looking ahead, right? Yeah. She's never looking back there. Right. Yeah. Right. So yeah. that's a great point because what, what else could they come up with that we would, we would miss out on that if absolutely. Back there. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Totally. Yep. Absolutely. There's two sides to the coin. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Can we do a little bit of a round robin for you with some of the artists that you've worked with and maybe, you know, sort of a music game, just say whatever comes to mind of what you remember working with them, what your experience was with them. You mentioned Buddy Guy a few minutes ago. That's a, that's a crazy one. Um, I had gotten a call from the studio owner one it one evening and he says hey mike can you come down early tomorrow morning for a session i've got a producer from nashville that wants to come up here and record some guitar like yeah dude and fine yeah let's go you know i was looking for work man and um so i go down i think it's like a nine nine or nine thirty start which is just crazy you know um so i i get down there and um I'm setting the room up and I call, I call this, this producer and I ask him, I says, you know, do you have a hard drive that you're bringing with, or do we need me to set up a session? What do you need me to do? How, you know, like prior to you getting here. Um, and, and are you bringing your own amps? You know, what's up? And he says, Oh yeah, I've got amps. Um, uh, both of us are about ready to get in a cab right now. I got hard drives. I got everything. Just, just hold off until I get there. All right, fine. So he gets there and, uh, and he says, he like mutters in our conversation. I had heard him say something like, Buddy and I are getting in the cab right now. And the only thing I knew was that we were going to do a guitar, right? And it's this producer from Nashville. But he said, Buddy. <laughs> like, all right, you don't say Buddy unless like, yeah. like your friend, like, or like, you know, you're talking about your actual buddy, you know, right. this buddy guy. And um, so I told my assistant at the time, I got the phone, I says, dude, here we go. <laughs> I think it's buddy guy, dude. He's like, really? And yeah. he, was, he was shocked. You know, he's like, he's like, oh, i like, dude, just chill out. It's cool. It's fine. <laughs> so anyway, buddy guy and, and Tom Hambridge walked through the door. Tom hands me this hard drive that says George Thorogood on it. I'm just about shit my pants. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then here comes Buddy's tech and his manager and a photographer, Paul Natkin, shows up. And uh, uh, and Paul had gotten me. Nah, that's a different story. I'll tell you that later. Okay. Um, so uh, Paul's or uh, Buddy's tech comes in with this amp, and he's got some amp I've never heard of. Uh, Chicago blue or something. I don't even know what it's called. Um, and he, he uh, plops it down and I put a microphone in front of it and I set it up and I got like a room mic going as well. And I go into the control room and buddy's, uh, you know, playing around, just warming up and, and I'm pulling the microphone up and I'm getting a sound and I'm tweaking things. And I, I go out and move the mic. And, you know, this whole time I've got, Buddy's tech, his manager, the photographer, and uh, and Tom Hambridge, the producer, all standing in back of me, silent and just staring at me. 
and I'm I'm kind of like thinking to myself like oh my god like shit like because I'm I'm really trying to get a great sound here. This is sure. a funny guy, okay? Funny guy, yeah. Um, and the sound was pretty good, I thought. And you know, I kind of got to the point where I was like, well, I need some feedback, you know. And so I kind of turn around and everyone just like gives me this blank stare in silence. <laughs> And I'm waiting for somebody to be like, hey, dude, that sounds great. You know, right. Nobody says anything. I says, well, what do you guys think? They're like, well, it sounds like Buddy. I'm like, oh, fuck, let's go. Right. <laughs> All right. You know, it's just, it was, it was me overthinking things, you know, and getting in my own head, you know, and, you know, conjuring up this anxiety for absolutely zero reason, right? But, you know, um, I, I do it to myself a lot, and I think a lot of people do it to themselves. Sure. Out of the ordinary. Right. Um, so anyway, um, you know, we start playing the track back for Buddy and showing him the section that we need him to play over and whatnot. And he's he's just not feeling it at all. I mean, like, it was just way out. It was like, hmm. shit, we, we got an issue here. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I turn and I, and I look to Tom and he's like, hey, can you get me some headphones out there? And I, I, and I can go out there and be with him in the room and I can kind of direct him. Yeah. yeah, sure. So Tom goes out there and Tom's counting him into the solo and he's giving him direction, you know, with, you know, hand gestures and when to break down, when to, you know, okay, build it up. And then, and then he's counting him out of the solo too. Right. Well, I don't know. We must've done five takes and buddy's like watching him and Tom's doing all this stuff and buddy's just like kerplunk, kerplunk, kerplunk. It's just like, I'm 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 in the control room with with the uh, the tech and, and the manager and I, we're all looking at each other like, what the hell's not going good? Must have been the sixth take or I don't know somewhere around there. Um, Buddy closes his eyes before Tom can count him in, and he just he comes in at the right time and he just starts wailing. And it was amazing. And his eyes are closed the whole time. And he's picking the guitar up and he's making all these wild sounds and this great solo. And and Tom kind of like looks at me and I'm like, Shh. <laughs> and he's, he's, I'm like, dude, just let it go. And, uh, and that was the solo. Wow. He had his eyes closed the entire time. Yeah. And that was just one of those, uh, those lightning in, in the, in a bottle type things. Um, and uh, that song was High Heeled Sneakers, I believe is the first song on George's last record. It's 2012 uh, Michigan Avenue, South Michigan Avenue. It's the old address of the old chess records. Yeah. Named the record. So this was Buddy, Buddy playing a solo on George Thorogood's album. Yep, yep, yep. Um, yeah. Then here's... Here's another interesting thing. This one really blew me away. Is after we were done with that, uh, Tom hands me another hard drive. And it just says Quinn on it, right? <clears throat> I, he's like, hey, you know, we're going to have Buddy play a solo on, on, this, on one of these songs so from a different client that I'm working with. Like, all right, cool. And put it up. And we have like an extra 20 minutes. So I put it up. And it's this cool, slower blues track. And... Um, and I like turn around to Tom, like, wow, oh, this is cool. And he's like, dude, pull up the vocal. You're really going to trip. I pull up the vocal and it sounds like 
it sounds like a little kid singing. It's good. It's really good. And I look at Tom like, what? He's like, that's who's playing the guitar. And the guitar was like crazy good. Like I had no idea. I mean, some of these licks that, that were coming out of the speakers were really, really great. And Tom says, yeah, this kid's, you know, 10 years old. Um, and, uh, buddy, buddy and he, and he have like, kind of like got this thing and, um, you know, they've been friends for a while. The kid's been jamming with buddy and buddy's going to play a solo on this song. So we do it and whatnot. And, you know, they, the uh, session's over with, and I, uh, I don't know, it must've been a couple months later. And I see this video of this kid, Quinn Sullivan. This is who it is, right? Yeah. You know, this kid who it is. Yeah. Is, I don't know, yeah? yeah, I think so. Oh, you should you should look him up. He's like Buddy Guy's little prodigy right now. He uh, uh, Quinn's parents brought him to one of Buddy's gig when Quinn was like seven years old or something, right? And Quinn was playing guitar. He's a huge Beatles freak. He's a huge fan of Buddy. You know, he had this polka dot guitar strap. He's this little kid, and he went up there and he started jamming with Buddy. And Buddy was like, "What do we have here?" You know. <laughs> So since then, Buddy has taken him under his wing. And I think Quinn is like, he's like 16 now. And he's jamming with, you know, Clapton. He's jamming with all these guys. Buddy's turned him on to everybody, you know. Um, He did a a big jam with him and Clapton and B.B. King years ago. Um, I mean, nuts, dude. If you're not hip to Quinn Solo, you should check him out. Totally. The kid's really, really good. Um, But that was, there's a cool little crazy unexpected session story for you. I had no idea that was happening. When right. No idea. Buddy guy was coming in the studio that day and, you know, uh, rightfully so. I think we can have a, a little bit of anxiety, intimidation, whatever with some of our music heroes. Right. So totally. Yeah. Totally normal. <laughs> yes. Yes. It happens all too often. Yeah. Did you get to work with George himself, George Thurgood? Nope. nope. No, just I mix. Did. Um, which would have been nice, but, um, but at the same time, uh, Buddy Guy would have been the star in my eyes in that session, if regard. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's you have Hendrix there. That's uh, it. Shadow Buddy on that particular day. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Tell me some of your favorite engineers, uh, sound mixing. I mean, there's been some incredible ones. Who are some of the ones that have influenced you? Oh, you know, it's really, really crazy you ask that because um, somebody that I work with now is one of those people. Um, and he's a mastering engineer uh, that, I, that I send all my stuff to. Um, and he wasn't a mastering engineer when I first had become aware of this, this guy. Um, but I had gone to school out in Los Angeles and my, my teacher, uh, who was a, a working professional. I know we'd, we'd spoken about the whole teacher professional thing. And, um, and this guy did it half and half. He would, he, he'd leave our, our, our school, uh, and then he'd go do sessions until two in the morning and then come do class at 10 AM. You know, he was one of those guys. He was great. Um, and he's the director now of that school, I believe. Steve Miller, Los Angeles Recording School. Mm. But Steve turned us on. 
you know, in one of our classes, he was like, Hey, you know, I want to demonstrate, you know, how to, you know, do this or this or that. Um, and you know, he played us this record that had just come out by a band called the archangels hmm. and the archangels was a band that, um, it was comprised of double trouble, of uh, Stevie Ray's rhythm section. This is yeah. after Stevie died. Okay. Along with Doyle Bramhall Jr. Um, and Charlie Sexton. Wow. Right. A fantastic lineup. Um, and I didn't know, I mean, I, I like knew about Double Trouble, but I didn't really know about Charlie, you know, uh, and after doing some research, like, oh yeah, Charlie was, he was, I think he was signed to Mercury in the, in the eighties and they dressed him up and he's got this big hair. And so it's totally not who he is, but, um, uh, but my teacher like turned us all on in class one day to this record and, and I fell in love with it sonically. Uh, production, the songs, everything about it was just so good. Um, and the mixes were fantastic. And it was, uh, it was recorded and mixed by this guy named Dave McNair. And I, you know, always had that guy's name in the back of my mind throughout all these years and whatnot. And um, I was working with the band, you know, seven years ago or so. And one of the, one of the guys in the band was like, Hey, you know, Maybe we'll have my friend uh, master this, this guy that, that I know. I was like, well, who is it? Dave McNair. I'm like, wait a second, dude. Dave McNair, that, and I, we start, you know, trading information. I'm like, you got to be shitting me. So he's like, no, dude. So Dave, Dave mastered that, and it was so good. It was great. And, um, you know, since then, you know, I had to call him and talk with him, you know, and we chatted for a while. We've become good friends, um, and uh, he does everything that I do. If I've got a budget for mastering it, I'm sending it to Dave. Um, so there's, there's one, but the person that really – um, got me intrigued about equipment um, and some of the boutique and esoteric high-end studio here um, was before I had even gone to school. I was still in the rehearsal space with the Fossex 8-track, not knowing what I'm doing, but knowing enough to get myself in trouble. And I was getting, I was getting tattooed. Um, and the owner of the tattoo shop I uh, was getting tattooed by one of the guys that worked there. So the owner leaves and has to, he like goes to some concert. And uh, I think it was um, a cult in Maryville, Indiana. And this is like 1990, 91, something like that. And he, and he comes back from the show. And now granted this, this tattoo studio, there's tigers there. There's alligators there. There's cobras. We had a bear, um, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating one bit. If you want to look it up, his name is Roy Boy. And he's in Gary, Indiana. And he had a license for all these animals. And there's literally, there was tigers in the basement. You know? So you're not talking about these as images of tattoos. You're talking real no. live tigers and cobras. We had, he had white tigers. I mean, it was just <laughs> incredible. So, you know, I was hanging out there a lot because I loved animals and whatnot. And at the time... At that particular time, he had four tiger cubs that were only like four months old. So we were, we were bottle feeding them and whatnot. Mm. And so anyway, he like comes back from this concert with this guy uh, that I guess is the singer of the opening band for the cult, you know, and this guy wants to get a tattoo. And this guy is like 
he's this short dude with these long dreadlocks and he's really super nice guy. He's really sweaty though. He just done a show. Right. And, um, uh, and he wants to, you know, Roy wanted to take some pictures of him with, with the tigers and the, the snakes and the bear and stuff like that. So I was helping Roy with, with all the tigers and helping, helping this, this guy, you know, like calming him down. Like, dude, don't worry about it. You know, I'm here. I got your back. I know how to deal with these things. I've been hanging out here for a while. If one of them gets rowdy, I just sock them in the nose and they're done. And uh, so we take some pictures with them. And, uh, and then uh, we go back to the tattooing and, and I'm getting tattooed. And this guy is getting tattooed by Roy right next to me. And he's getting this, um, this purple iris on his butt, right? So he's laying down on his stomach with his head toward me on his, and he's got his pants down. And we just start talking. And he's a super nice guy. And um, it was kind of awkward, you know, but, you know, whatever. Hey, you know. It's rock and roll. (laughs) Go with it. For him than me. Right. uh, So we start talking and I start telling him, he asked me if I play music and whatnot. And I tell him, yeah, I got this little eight track. I mess around. I don't know what I'm doing. He's like, oh, man, you know, you should. You, know, you guys should get like a like an old Helios console or an old Telefunken microphones or, or an old Neve this or that. And he's so he's spouting this Neve, Helios, and Telefunken. These are the three key things that he was talking about, like recording gear wise. And you know they those names never left me for some reason. I had never heard those names before. And um, so tattooing's done. It's like it's late. And this guy gets back on his tour bus and bails. Gives everybody a hug before he leaves, and that's the last we see of him. Um, and I, I, I caught his name, and I went out, and he, he like told me, he's like, go out and buy my record tomorrow. It's in stores and stuff. Like, wow, cool. Got a record out, dude. That's pretty cool. I go out and buy his record. His name's Lenny Kravitz, right? Holy cow. Yeah. And this is his first record, Let Love Rule. Wow. And my fucking jaw hit the floor. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> oh, oh my, oh shit. My world got turned upside awesome. down. Awesome. Because I now I knew Neve, Helios, and Telefunken. Who would you, who's on that dream list for you, Mike? I mean, you, you, you're making a living in the music business. You're finding a balance. You're working with great artists. And, and you know, you're finishing the album with Donnie V. Who's on that dream list of who you still love to work with at this point um you know it's weird because i don't think about that much um and i'll tell you why i don't think about that much um i I've been, I think, somewhat disillusioned, I think, as everybody is with their musical heroes, whether it's a, or a filmmaker or, or anybody that you don't know and you just know by their work. Um, it can be disappointing, right? Um, in fact, a case in point, going back to the Archangels, right? Charlie Sexton. Dave McNair did that record, that whole deal. That record's always been huge, right, in my book. Well, a few years ago, I was at a venue, and Charlie was playing that night, and I got in, I, 
I get to the venue and I'm there with my buddy and we get into the elevator and lo and behold, Charlie gets in the elevator with us to go upstairs to where like stages. And my buddy like looks at me cause he knows how much I love him. And he looks at me, he's like, like, what are you going to do? And I was like, Shh. nothing, nothing. <laughs> Absolutely silent, quiet. Like I don't know who he is. I just want to enjoy the show. Looking back on it, maybe I should have said, hey, and given him a hug or something. But yeah, you know, right. probably what I would have done is the problem. I probably would have crushed him. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you another story about doing that. Jeff Beck. Mm-hmm. I was working at a studio in Hollywood in, at the Sunset Marquee, which is a hotel in Hollywood. And at the hotel, there's a studio in the basement. And it's a nice place because you can, you can stay at the hotel and nobody knows that you're there. It's really off the beaten path. It's tiny. Um, and you don't have to leave the premises to go work, right? You can just go take the elevator downstairs to the basement parking garage. There's a studio down there that's fantastic and go down there and do work and then come back up. And so I had been working down there all day. Um, and the assistant, you know, I, I was, I was drinking at the hotel bar later that night and the assistant uh, that had been with us all day is like looking for me at the bar. He's like, Mike, Mike, Mike. I'm like, hey, dude, come over here. He's like, hey, dude, follow me. I got somebody for you to meet. He's down in the studio. He's hanging out with, with Jeb, Jeb Lieberman, who's the studio owner. And um, we go down there, and he opens the door, and there's Jeff Beck. Wow. wow. <laughs> I almost shit my pants, you know? Right. And, um, you know, it turns out, Jesse, the, the, the assistant, grew up with Jeff as a family friend. So it was nothing for, you know, hey, Jeff, I want you to meet my buddy type of thing. But he didn't prep me at all, right? And I had a few drinks in me. I was, you know, I was revved up, man. I was, you know, I had just done a really big day at work. I was relaxing. I was drinking. And I go to shake Jeff's hand, and he's a little guy. I'm not a little guy. and. I nearly brought him to his knees. Oh, no. I brushed his hand. Oh no. Yeah. And it was right hand. It was like, oh. And I like shook his hand all, you know. Right. You're excited, right? Whoa, whoa, whoa. And I was like, oh shit. He's like, I'm sorry. He's like, mate, you're gonna ruin my career. <laughs> like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Yeah, you don't want to be known as the guy who broke Jeff Beck's hand. Oh, and it came real close, dude. I mean, I was so stoked to see this guy. Sure. Another music hero. Right? I had a few drinks in me and uh, a good buzz on, and I just went honk. <laughs> Last question then, Mike. For someone who wants to become a, a sound engineer, engineer producer in the music business, what advice would you give them? Don't do it. <laughs> Run away. <laughs> um, although that's what, that's what I was told to. Um, prior to me going to school, um, my uncle uh, had a friend that owned a studio, uh, Lion's Share in Los Angeles, where you know Neil Diamond Records were done there and like a successful studio. Sure. And he had spoken with his buddy about, you know, his nephew wants to go to school for this. And... <laughs> He's like, don't let him do it. Don't let him do it. So, you know, I, I didn't heed that warning. Um, 
Uh, but I honestly feel like it's a different climate out there than it was when I was, at least when I was a kid, you know, um, there were studios that you could go get an internship at. I don't really, you know, I don't, I don't know what to tell kids nowadays. Um, other than try to get an internship somewhere and make yourself indispensable and shut up, please shut up. Right. Um, but do, but, and try to be extremely proactive, right? Try to foresee what the artist might need or the engineer or the producer and whether that is food, right. <laughs> like, you know, like, you know, why don't you, if you think people are going to be getting hungry, why don't you go grab the menu book from up front so you don't have to go searching for it and just have it ready. Or that, or that could be, you know, making sure that a certain microphone is available for, you know, for vocals for the next two hours, you know, and that the, you know, Studio B is not going to be using it. Um, or maybe that's, you know, prepping for the next session and, you know, making sure that the room is super clean for that next session that comes in, you know, um, and do it better than the other guy, you know. Um, you know, I think it's all common sense um, in any industry as far as being proactive, um, uh, being humble, don't say too much, absorb everything, watch what's going on, read the room, you know, and be honest with yourself when you read the room, okay? You know, don't read the room and be like, you know, you know, don't think that you're hot shit, you know? Um, and uh, try to... Uh, I guess just try to get a relationship with bands and with artists and whatnot. I mean, you know, I've not gotten any work from, from having a website. I've not gotten any work from, from a Facebook page or anything like that. It's all been clientele throughout the years, staying in touch with people. Um, and first and foremost, I think is just being a, a good people person, right? People want to have to have to want to hang out with you to hire you. You know, um, if I, if Donnie and I didn't get along as well as we do, I wouldn't be able to spend three months living with him, you know, and vice versa on his side too. Sure. Um, so you, you, you like have to be a likable person. You, you know, you just can't be that, that, and you cannot be an introvert. You have to be somewhat extroverted. Um, and very humble. You got to be humble and stay humble, stay humble. You know, nobody likes that arrogant, that arrogant guy, you know what I mean? Um, and try to let your work speak for itself, you know? Yeah. So. It's great advice, great music and life advice, I think. Mike Tholen, thank you so much for being on Musicians on the Record. Thank you, David. Take care.